in the past couple of months, I've seen so much growth in our small group. Our discussions are better than ever. We're hanging out more outside of church. There was this one incident with Jeff's car, but we're over that. Yeah, yeah, there was that day that I spent about five hours in the woods, in the middle of nowhere, trying to call Steven. Used up the last of my cell phone battery. I tried to tell him that you know, I'm stalled. Missed my daughter's dance recital. She cried on stage. Oh, am I over it? The misunderstanding? Yeah, yeah, sure, sure, of course. And that's how I knew it was time to tackle something big. I've actually been looking forward to small group lately. It's been more real, relevant. So when I saw Stephen's email about this week's study, I, I, I thought maybe he was joking. The topic just seemed kind of intense. Then I remembered, yeah, Stephen doesn't make jokes. I wish we could wait for Lindsay to come back, but let's face it, we might not have that long. Dear small group, greetings from beautiful Ohio. Our family road trip is off to a great start. We spend hours in the car together every day and have seen many rest areas. I saw the email that this week's study is on the second coming of Jesus Christ, and I am so disappointed to miss it. But don't worry, I'm sending all my thoughts here. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. Then we who are alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Any questions? Uh, well, yeah, just a couple. <laughs> Great. Today we're discussing the second coming, the second advent. You guys know, when I was 12, I asked for my first book on eschatology. Mm. God bless you. Oh, wait, what? Eschatology, the study of the end times, mm -hmm. trying to understand when Jesus will return and what will happen then. Yeah. Well, but isn't it true that no one knows when he'll return? I mean, isn't that the only thing we know for sure? The idea of Jesus returning to Earth makes me, makes me uncomfortable. It, oh, is it okay if I say that? I, I know I should be excited, but it's scary too. I, I'm not a theologian, but isn't this when all my friends who don't believe, you know, get left behind? I mean, whatever that means. I feel like if Jesus returns, great for us. <laughs> but what about everybody else? One of my biggest fears used to be that Jesus wouldn't return while I was watching an R-rated movie. Or while I was in the shower. <laughs> well, have you ever seen those t-shirts that say, Jesus is coming, look busy. Well, that's a little bit how I feel about the second coming. Uh, I mean, if Jesus came right now, uh, would I be ready? I, you know, it, would, would Jesus be uh, pleased with me? 
So one thing I've always wondered, why does Jesus have to come back? Since we are going to him, to heaven, ultimately. Tomorrow I looked up and saw Jesus floating down from heaven. Although, would I see him floating down? Or would he float over Jerusalem? Or would he be everywhere all at once? Well, it, anyway, if, if I saw Jesus coming back, I, I would just be really happy. I'd be really happy to see him. I went through a phase where I really tried to live every day as if that were the day the Lord would return. I'd wake up in the morning and I'd say to myself, this is it. I shared the gospel with everyone I could. I called my family. I made sure they were ready. I didn't worry about tomorrow because, hey, we might not even be here. The thing was, it didn't really happen. And that kind of urgency, it's really hard to keep up. I actually got really discouraged. But then I felt the opposite. If he hasn't returned in over 2,000 years, then why now? Right, so we don't know when Jesus will return. Right. But what do we know? Well, uh, the book of Revelation is about the end times, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I read it, but I, I don't really understand much of it. You know, there's something about a beast. Uh, there was thrones. Yeah. Things were on fire. I mean, cryptic numbers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, that almost sounds like an HBO series, not a book of the Bible. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. Well, guys, you know, I think what really matters is that Jesus will make right all the evil in the world. However that looks, that's up to him. His first coming wasn't expected by anyone, so why should the second one be any different? Mm. It's funny you say that because the first coming, Christmas, it gives me a warm, fuzzy feeling. Yeah. yeah. But the second coming, and the words just sound ominous. You know, I, I think it's the, I don't know, the overtones of judgment. There's some reckoning. <gasps> you know, guys, I don't really have all the answers on all this stuff. Uh, what? I'm leaving. That's it. What are you, stalled? <laughs> I'm sorry, man. Oh. Steven. Steven, we're joking. At <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> all right, then. <laughs> Let's dive right in, all right? All right. <laughs> if the Lord returns before I do from this road trip, I look forward to greeting you in my glorified body. You probably won't recognize me. With you in spirit, Lindsay. Well, in just a few minutes' time, that drama manages to capture so many of the questions and feelings we have about the second coming of Christ. Fear, wonder, excitement, doubt, and a whole lot of uncertainty. Even our biblically astute small group leader, Stephen, doesn't have all the answers. Down through the centuries, the 
the doctrine of the second coming of Christ has been a source of confusion and controversy and distraction and even division within the church of Jesus Christ. And for those outside the church, the, the, the idea that Christ might come back to earth again is little more than a, a punchline for a sitcom or yet another reason not to believe. Now, the irony of all this is that the promise of the second coming was meant to be an encouragement to Christians and a wake-up call for skeptics. So obviously, something seems to have gone wrong with our understanding of the second coming of Christ. Now, this spring, we've been asking the question, where is Jesus now, and what is he doing? And so a couple things have been becoming clear to us, three of them, in fact. First of all, we've learned that Jesus is in heaven now, sitting at the right hand of God, ruling over all things and interceding for us on our behalf. Physically, he's in heaven. Spiritually, he's with us through his Holy Spirit, comforting and empowering us for Christian life and ministry. And we've been leaning into those two themes, that he's in heaven and he's with us. But there's a third truth about where Jesus is now and what he's doing that we haven't talked about as much. And that's the truth that he's on his way back to finish what he's begun. And that's the theme we'd like to lean into for these next few weeks. On that 40th day after the resurrection, the disciples watched Jesus rise from the earth and disappear into the clouds. And on that day, an angel announced to them and to us, this same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. 2,000 years later, we're still waiting for that to happen. Now, most of us tend to make one of two errors when it comes to the second coming of Christ. Some of us think too much about it. We obsess over it. We spend time and energy on it that we might better spend on other things. Others of us think too little about it. We don't take it seriously. We lose our sense of urgency. Too much or too little. Neither one is a biblical or helpful response to the second coming of Christ. So, like Stephen, I don't have answers to all the questions we might have about the second coming. But today, I'd like us to go after three very important questions and see if we can find an answer to them. The first is, when is Jesus coming back? Second, how is Jesus coming back? And third, what should we be doing until he comes back? Okay? Three questions. Let's see what we can find. To answer those questions, I'd like to take you to another one of the letters of the New Testament that we've been looking at this spring. Uh, this one was written by the Apostle Paul and written to a group of people who are feeling very much like the members of the small group we just met, confused and curious about the second coming of Christ. There was the church in Thessalonica that Paul was writing to. So we'll look at a few passages out of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 5. So the first question we'll go after is the one we're probably most curious about. When is Jesus coming back? So to answer that one, let's go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, the first few verses. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. 
Now, Thessalonians is one of the earliest letters we have in the New Testament, written 15 or maybe 20 years after the ascension. So hardly any time has passed, and yet already the believers are beginning to wonder what's taking so long. And they're asking many of the same questions that we might ask, two of them in particular. Some of them are asking, what if we die before Jesus returns? Will we be left behind, buried in the ground? Others were asking, what if we're alive when he comes, but we miss it? Will we be left behind while he and his people go off to heaven? Being left behind is the primal fear that most of us have when it comes to the idea of the second coming of Christ. No one wants to be left behind. When I was a teenager, there was a lot of fervor about the second coming of Christ. A movie came out called Thief in the Night, and it told the story of what would happen on the earth when Christians were suddenly taken out of the world up into heaven. Planes without pilots, cars without drivers. I remember one chilling scene in particular of an electric razor buzzing in the bathroom sink while a frantic wife tried to figure out what happened to her husband. It scared the you-know-what out of us. In those days, we would sit around in our bell-bottom pants with a folk guitar, <laughs> singing, two men walking up a hill. One disappears and one's left standing still. I wish we'd all been ready. There's no time to change your mind. The sun has come, and you've been left behind. Talk about a come-to-Jesus moment. <laughs> so because of those fears, from the very earliest days, Christians have tried to predict the time of Christ's return so they would be ready, so they wouldn't miss it, so they wouldn't be left behind. Unfortunately, all those attempts to predict Christ's return have only created more confusion, more anxiety, and more opportunities for Christians to look foolish to the world. Now, I have seriously lost count of the number of false alarms I have lived through in my 50-some years of following Christ. For me, it began in the 1970s with a book called The Late Great Planet Earth written by a popular Bible teacher named Hal Lindsey, and my copy was just as dog-eared as this one is. He pointed to the restoration of Israel in 1948 as the sign that Christ had to return within one generation by 1988. And all the signs pointed to it. Um, Russia was the great bear of the North. Henry Kissinger was the Antichrist. Communism was the dragon. The, the, the newly released UPC code was the mark of the beast. <laughs> it was all there. I remember wondering if I should even bother going to college and study for the ministry. I mean, if time was so short, why not just hit the streets and tell people about Jesus? In the end, I'm glad I went ahead with my education. <laughs> Because by the time 1988 rolled around, I had a wife and kids to provide for. So, obviously, that year came and went with nothing happening. Well, some years later, a highly regarded Bible teacher named Harold Camping wrote a book entitled 1994. Now, Camping was careful not to predict an actual day and time of Christ's return because the Bible said no one knows. But based on his analysis, he predicted with 99.9% .9 certainty 
that Christ would come sometime between September 15th and 17th, 1994. And he based that on an extensive study of every number and date in the Bible. Now, understand, Camping was a highly regarded scholar. I had listened to him on the radio in our house for most of my growing up years. But by this time, 1992, whenever the book came out, I was a pastor. And this book wreaked havoc on our church and many other churches. We had people wanting to quit their jobs and liquidate their bank accounts. We had people leave the church because I wouldn't take it more seriously. Now, when 1994 came and went with nothing happening, Camping revised his prediction to March 30 through 31st, 1995, which also came and went with nothing happening. Well, next it was Y2K. All right, the turn of the millennium. Many of us remember the uncertainty, the anxiety about that date and how the worldwide computer crash would, would bring down the world's economies and send planes crashing to the ground. And many Christians, including well-known preachers, were, were declaring that there was no way humankind could make it into the third millennium. Well, the midnight moment came and went. And the next morning, our automatic coffee makers worked just like they always had. <laughs> well, then, not too many years ago, Harold Camping resurfaced. Without apology for his previous miscalculations, and offered a new prediction, May 20th through 21st, 2011. Maybe some of you remember seeing these billboards around New York and New England. Now, fewer people took him as seriously this time, but once again, it became a source of distraction and disunity and embarrassment for the Christian church. And so now, once again, in recent years, as persecution rises against Christians around the world, as our social mores are changing dramatically, many preachers and teachers are telling us once again that these are the final days. Someone sent me a YouTube just the other day of a popular, popular radio preacher predicting that the Antichrist will appear by August 30th of this year. Now, coincidentally, that is just after our political conventions are concluded. <laughs> So I don't know if he has anyone in mind, and I'm not going to hazard a guess, all right? So if you're wondering why we haven't jumped on this bandwagon, and why we haven't scrapped everything to preach a year-long series on the end times, this is why. I've been down this road too many times. Now, I am not saying that these preachers and teachers don't have a point. These may be the last days. And I am not saying they are not, not well-intended, and that we wouldn't do well to have a greater sense of attentiveness and urgency. Nothing wrong with those things. What I am saying emphatically is that the one thing all these predictions have had in common is that they are wrong. 100% of the people who predicted the time of Christ's return have been wrong. So when we insist on setting dates and making predictions and drastically reordering our lives, we set ourselves up for disappointment, for division, for disillusionment.
None of those serve God's purpose. So Paul makes it as clear as he can to the Thessalonians and to us that when it comes to the return of Christ, we don't know when it's going to happen. About times and dates, I do not need to write to you, he says. Or to put it in the vernacular, what part of no one knows don't you understand? <laughs> what we do know about Christ's return is that it could happen anytime. Like a thief breaking into your house, or like a pregnant woman going into labor. As much as you'd like to know the night the thief was coming so you could alert the local police, as much as an expected parents would like to know how much time they have left to paint the nursery, no one can predict those dates. You just have to be ready. You have to live as low they could happen anytime. And that's the best answer to the question, when is Christ coming back? Anytime. Anytime. The word theologians like to use is the word imminent. Imminent. Which simply means about to happen or at any moment. At some point in the ninth month of pregnancy, the doctor says to the parents, pack your bags. The baby is ready. Your body is ready. Get your house ready. This baby could come anytime. Nothing else needs to happen before the baby could be born. The same is true for the return of Christ. When we say it's imminent, it means nothing else needs to happen before Christ comes again. Now, what I like about that analogy of childbirth is that it's not a scary one. I mean, if you're expecting parents, what could be more exciting? What is more motivating than to wake up every day thinking this could be the day? This could be the day a new life comes into the world. This could be the day a new chapter begins for our family. And that's the spirit Paul wants us to have about the return of Christ, the spirit of readiness and expectancy and anticipation. You want to be ready. It's imminent. And for those who are prepared, it means that any day now, any day now, Christ could come. And, 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 and our work could be done, and a new chapter, a better, more glorious chapter of human history could begin any day. For those who are not prepared, for those whose hearts and houses are not ready, then imminent means you don't have much time. Now is the time. That spooky song from the 70s wasn't all wrong. At a certain point, there'll be no time to change your mind. The sun will have come, and you could find yourself left behind. So the biblical answer to the question, when is Jesus coming back, is one word, anytime. Anytime. The second question we want to answer today is, how is Jesus coming back? And so to answer that one, let's go back to 1 Thessalonians, but we'll drop back to chapter 4, verses 15 through 17. Paul writes, According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left to the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. 
For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Now, there are a variety of perspectives as to how literally we should interpret verses like these. Some will argue that it will happen just as we're told, that we will hear the sound of trumpets and a voice from heaven. Others will say that Paul and other writers are using figurative language to describe a strikingly conspicuous event. Either way you want to handle these scriptures, the point is still the same. When Christ returns, it will be hard to miss. It'll be hard to miss. Because remember, there were some Christians, some believers in Thessalonica who were afraid they might be alive when he came, but that they might miss it and be left behind. Paul's saying, you don't need to worry about that. His second coming will not be like his first coming, quietly, in weakness and obscurity. His second coming will be in power and in glory. He won't come as a child, born in an out-of-the-way village, recognized by a handful of shepherds. He'll come as a king, returning to his country, to the sound of trumpets and the shout of triumph, power and glory. So the answer to the second question, how is Jesus coming back, is also pretty simple. In power and glory. In power and glory. Now, we should talk for a minute about a couple of words that are used here uh, to talk about the second coming of Christ. And the first is a Greek word, parousia. It's a word that can be translated either appearing or coming. The idea behind the word is that parousia means that someone who is absent will now be present. Something that is invisible will now be visible. So in this present time period, Jesus is not physically present as he was for those 30-some years when he walked the earth. Our eyes cannot see him now. When he returns at the parousia, that will change. He will again be physically present on earth, and every eye will see him. So again, whether he will literally descend on clouds or whether he will suddenly make himself known to everyone, that's a matter of your interpretation, how literal or figurative. The point is, none of his people will miss it. Believers who have died will have their physical bodies raised to glorified life. Those who are alive when he comes will rise from the earth, also receiving their glorified bodies to meet the Lord in the air. And that leads to the second word we should talk about, which is the word rapture. And that actually comes from a Latin word that means to be caught or snatched up. Now, this rapture of believers will result in Christians being taken out of the world for a period of time while the world experiences a time of tribulation and judgment. Now, there's a lot of debate about whether this rapture will happen before or after or in the middle of this period of tribulation. But what's clear is that believers will be spared whatever final judgment might be falling on this earth at the end of the age. And Paul makes that clear in chapter 5. He says, For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, 
but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. So whenever and however the end comes, it ends with believers spending eternity with God, with Christ, and with his people. But here's the interesting thing, the thing that many of us, including me, have misunderstood for a long, long time. We're not being raptured to escape the world. We're being raptured to return to the world with Christ and rule the world, a world that has now been put right. I'm going to say that again. We're not being raptured to escape the world. We're being raptured to return to the world and rule the world that has finally been put right by Christ's return. Let me show you what I mean. This word parousia that we've been talking about, it was used in the ancient world to describe the, the coming of a king to his city or his territory. Remember, an, an empire as far flung as Rome and travel as slow and difficult as it was in ancient days, there were many parts of an empire, many cities that might never actually see their king, their emperor. So if and when the king was actually coming to a city, to, to visit that city or to establish his rule there, that was a great occasion. And so to mark the occasion, dignitaries of the city would go out of the city to meet the king on his way and then turn and welcome him back into his city to install him on his throne and to take their places alongside him. So Paul is telling us that the return of Christ will be like that. We're not leaving this world to go live in the clouds. We're leaving this world to meet our coming king, to accompany him back to his earth, to establish his rule and take our places alongside him in a renewed earth and a renewed heaven. We'll talk more about that in a couple of weeks. But my guess is that for many of us, this is a game changer in terms of how we've used the return of Christ, the rapture of the church, and our eternal destiny. It has all kinds of implications for how we think about this planet that we call Earth, and all kinds of implications for how we want to be living as we look forward to his return. And that leads us to our third question. What should we be doing in the meantime? when we wait for him to return. So to answer that one, let's go to chapter 5. But you, brothers and sisters, are not, in, are not in darkness that this day should surprise you like a thief. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as, in fact, you are now doing. So Paul's reminding us that while believers may be temporally surprised when Christ comes because no one knows the day or hour, we shouldn't be spiritually surprised because he's told us he's coming back. And so Paul says, let us be awake and sober. By awake, he means aware and attentive. By sober, he means reasonable and self-controlled. In other words, we shouldn't we shouldn't lose our sense of urgency and get lazy. We should be awake and aware. But neither should we panic 
and get crazy and irresponsible in our behavior. Let's be sober. And this is where that thief in the night analogy becomes helpful. There are two ways to prepare for a thief in the night. You could put up a barbed wire fence around the perimeter of a property, get yourself a gun, and sit by the window all night, every night. You would certainly be ready, but you would miss a whole lot of life. The other way to prepare for a thief in the night is to lock your doors, maybe get an alarm system, and ask the neighbors to keep an eye on the place while you're away. And then get on with the business of living. And that's the response that Paul is calling for. Being ready for the second coming doesn't mean making wild predictions. It doesn't mean emptying your bank account. It doesn't mean stirring up controversy in the church. Being ready for the second coming means getting your spiritual house in order and then getting on with the business of being God's people in this world, being about the work of the kingdom, the work he asked us to do when he left the first time, the work of making disciples and spreading the gospel and building the church and doing justice and showing mercy and walking humbly with God. And as Paul himself tells us, it's the work we're already doing. In fact, you can read about this work in our annual report, which is just being released today. Pick it up outside or read it online. The good, good work that's being done in our communities and our city and all around the world. The good work that God's people are doing in churches like this all across the world. That's what he wants us to be doing. The work of the kingdom. To do it with excellence, to do it with urgency as we look forward to his return. And so that's the answer to our third question. What should we be doing in the meantime? The work of the kingdom. Because the point of Christ's return is to finish what he's begun. The work of putting the world right. A work he's asked us to be doing as we await his return. So, three questions, three answers. When is Christ coming back? Anytime. How is he coming back? In power and glory. What should we be doing until he comes back? The work of the kingdom. As it turns out, there's actually a fourth question that needs to be answered today. But don't worry, I'm not going to answer it for you, because I can't. This question you have to answer for yourself. Are you ready? Are you ready for the second coming of Christ? If Christ were to return today, are you confident that you would rise to meet him and spend eternity with him and his people? Or is there a possibility that if Christ were returned today, you could be left behind to spend eternity alone? Only you can answer that question. And understand that being ready is not about knowing the day or the time. It's not about being in church when he shows up. It's about believing that he lived and died and rose again for you. It's about asking him to forgive you for your sins and to begin forming you into the person you want to be, the person you are meant to be for all eternity. And if you've never 
made that decision, then today would be a great day because we don't know how many more days we have left. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for answering some of the questions we have about your return and the end of the age. We thank you that these things are meant to encourage us, knowing that you will return to finish what you've begun in us and in this world. Someday we will be the people and this will be the world that you intended from the beginning. We look forward to that day. And if any are here today who are not ready for it, I pray, Lord, you would open their hearts to see and receive this good news. And Lord, as we come to the communion table now, we pray that you might meet each of us exactly where we are on our journey of life and faith. As we remember your life and death and resurrection, and as we look forward to that day, you will come to make all things right. Meet us here in these moments, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.